0: I want to let you know a couple of things. I saw some on September 7th yesterday, one of the mascots, or should I say, one of the leaders of our music scene going back into the 70s, one of the most iconic records that would rock a dance floor coming out of the Motown Records camp, mixed by Tom Moulton. The artist's name is Carl Bean, and that song was I Was Born This Way. Unfortunately, we all received news that he passed on and is now at a higher place. That song was a very transcending song for the gay movement. And he also was an archbishop of his church out west. Um, and we want to wish him and his family, of course, the condolences and rest in eternal peace, our brother Carl B. But I'm going to tell you a little tidbit about that record before we start. Tom Moulton told me for many years that multi-track was sitting in Tom's house on the Upper West Side. People were looking for that multi-track. For whatever reason, Motown Inhabit or I, I don't remember, because I know Norman Harris and the Philly sound machine was behind it. And this actual multi-track, which is that two-inch tape 24-track, was called the group called Liberation, wasn't called Bean. And was just liberation born this way. So for years, Tom would come into his apartment and he'd have a rack and it would be sitting there. I think Mel Sharon was asking at the time or somebody next plateau. And back in the 80s, they did a remix package on it and they found the tape. It was with Tom Moulton. He says, that's the tape. He forgot he mixed it. Well, for whatever reason, or didn't realize, never put Carl Bean with the word liberation. So that little tip is a bit of history on a Wednesday, but we want to, again, condolences to the Carl Bean family for the loss of such a great person. Welcome to True House Stories. I am Lenny Fontana coming out of NYC. Each and every week, we scour the music industry, and the world to find the greatest talent, A&R people, producers, DJs, singers, musicians, to come forth and share their stories with us. And this week, I have a powerhouse of a man. I personally can call a friend. We've worked together. We've we've hung together. We've DJed together. I've been on radio shows with him, on his shows. He has such wonderful history and he is what I call an architect to our music scene because he did so many great things, picked up so many great records, was involved. You know, everyone has a piece of their game. And somehow or another, in each puzzle, we don't really know all the players until you find out later who was behind the certain records. And he is an icon, for God's sake. i like to welcome... To True House Stories,
1: Mr. Nick Hawks. <laughs> well, greetings. Greetings, Lenny. Thank you for that uh, tremendous uh, welcome. You know, checks in the post and all of that. <laughs> David Morales told me the same thing. He says, I got to have you come and do the introduction. Yeah, man. We could get you on the mic at uh, at some uh, at some events. My, my DJ sets might go better with a, with a with a build up like that in front of them. And a quick little drink to go with it. That would be but, nice. Yeah, I'll take that.
0: First, I want to ask before, of course, how are you doing, brother? And how have you been coping through this horrific dark period, COVID you know, era?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, uh, where does one start? I mean, a, a real change of lifestyle for me. Um, I'd say pre-COVID, I was probably traveling at least once every four to six weeks for something you know, conventions or artists that I work with that are out on the road or I'm out on the road myself. Um, So um, I'm talking international flights pretty much once a month Uh, and then down to zero, obviously. And, you know, just decades of, of living in nightclubs and in festivals and and, and the, 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 you know, kind of having all of those spontaneous moments that, you know, are really important in our industry where I happen to be at something and somebody go, Nick, have you met? Some? No, I haven't met. Oh, you, you guys should hang out because Nick does this, that and the other. And then all of a sudden we're working on something together and then I'm managing this person and a whole new chapter emerges out of sort of chance meetings. But then all the chance meetings stop. So it was a real big shock to the system, and I kind of felt that I'd been forced to start living the life of somebody maybe 25 years older than I actually am. Now, I generally don't live the life, I don't think, of somebody who's my age anyway, um, but it forced me to just be like a, somebody in their, in their mid-70s, really, you know, where the highlight of the day is just the walk to the local park or to the store or whatever. However, having said all of that, it was an opportunity to, to get some new shit done. Um, so I, di- I didn't sort of watch loads of Netflix and read loads of books. I, I If anything, I got deeper into the music. Um, and then the, the output of Nick Reach Up, which is my kind of, um, you know, remix production kind of name, really went up significantly during lockdown. So I managed to get a whole bunch of stuff done um, and, and Rich reached a bit of an unexpected high point during the whole lockdown phase. So there was no clubs. But at that point, I'd been asked to remix Kylie um, officially a track of her album Disco. Nice. Nice. Yeah, Mel C. as well before that, first track of her new album. I did that. And I did a whole bunch of Easy Street stuff. I did De Lacey, Hot Street, Cultural Vibe, My Bay. I did. You oh, yeah. You, so, wait a You were the man behind the Easy Street uh, stuff with Mike Gusick to relaunch
0: you? Or did you put that together? Yes. I saw yes. Michael Gray also was doing mixes too. I was wondering who was the mastermind behind that machine?
1: Well, Yes. So basically, my I work. It, it could almost segue us into to, to my my life in New York in the uh, in Oh, well let's go there for. let Let's go. All ahead. right. But uh, but yeah yeah. Basically, I was working with Mike Guzik on all of that stuff, and I worked with him back in the eighties. Would you believe? Yes. Yes. Mike you Guzik. You believe. Yeah. Good guy. So
0: I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad you're safe. And and I just want to say this though you now understand what a pensioner feels like, right? Because that's key key to when you said, I feel like I'm in my, you know, at my golden era,
1: you know? Well, I mean, I'm hoping when I'm in my seventies that I'll generally be doing exactly what I'm doing now. So my, my model for, for, you know, myself in in my 70s is whatever david rodigan's doing now are you familiar with david rodigan the legendary reggae dj yes. uh presenter and he's just he's somebody he's still out there still passionate still loving it still up on stage still investing tons of energy in because he absolutely loves it and I hopefully i'll be that person myself so that is my plan that is my long-term plan to try and keep doing what i what i do for as long as i can the only golden thing—I remember—I ran into this older gentleman a few years
0: back, and he said, "The only golden thing about being in the golden era is the urine that comes out of me." He said, "I am not stopping anything." He said, "I am living every day just like I did when I was in my mid 30s I cracked up laughing. I says, "I totally get it." So, on that note, there, yeah. I want to get to started because you have a lot of things to tell us and a lot of history. So, as a young lad. Yes. Wherever part you want to pick it up from, middle school, high school, where does music find you, or how do you find the music?
1: Yeah. Well, it found me really. You know, I don't think that anybody kind of selects the music industry because they think it's going to be a stable career path or there's a, a sort of very easy to follow you know promotion sort of system where you can rise up through it. it's not easy it's all chaotic and you know good things can happen or it can, you can go things can go really quiet for a long period of time um so it just grabbed me uh you know I loved listening to the to the radio the top 40 countdown when I was a kid um uh and in terms of like dance and electronic music the first thing that grabbed me was there was a dj called al matthews had a a show called disco vating on radio one and uh it was a disco show probably ran from like 1979 to 80 or something like that at a guess. so i was young um you know we're talking 12 uh let's think yeah about 12 years old maybe just into 13 and then me and my best buddy andy smith Um, heard this show and somehow instead of thinking we don't understand this music we we both sort of looked at each other and went we're digging this this is good isn't it yeah it is so we kind of just you know we found ourselves as these 12 13 year old white kids living in um, a small town uh, about 15 miles outside of Bristol and we were the kids who were into like True Cell, Love Injection and Dynasty and Above and Beyond by Edgar Winter and you know these kind of records were were, were exciting us um, and uh, and it, we were absolutely the oddities of our, of our year group at school for being into this stuff so we would meet Other kids on the bus coming home from Bristol, we'd have a bag of records that we'd bought as 13-year-olds, some cheap, you know, sort of reduced 12-inch dance singles, you know, or whatever, which most people wouldn't know the names of. But we're like, oh, wow, we got the True Sale 12. Oh, we've got this Chalamar thing or something. Um, And people would be like, so what have you bought? And we'd just be like, oh, it's just some cheap stuff. I don't even know what it is. I just, you know, I just thought, give it a go. We, we, we didn't want to come out and go like, yeah, we're into this like black American dance music. This is what we like. Because it, it wasn't like cool. It wasn't the dumb thing. And all the kids were into other stuff. Um, and, but then so then the passion grew. And then we me and my buddy Andy started running mobile disco uh, stuff um, where we had a, a hi-fi from his house and a hi-fi from my house, two home hi-fis, four speakers. No mixer, and we'd run the parties with the two hi fi's. And like he'd be in charge of one hi fi with like a rotary control, and I'd be in charge of the other one that had have a up and down figure. And we do we play parties for kids, you know, ninth birthday or whatever. So did you actually get on the microphone? Because I know. Yeah, we did a bit Tony of
0: that. Prince, Tony Prince yeah. made that kind of famous in the in the, with the DMC. He would be jumping on the mic. A lot of guys did in those days. They didn't mix. They got on the mic in between, like a radio, like a true radio DJ.
1: No? We would attempt to do mixes between the two hi fi's, but that's that ain't easy mixing between two hi fi's. I mean, you're talking two sets of headphones. No mix. There's no How do you mix when you haven't got a mixer? Well, we tried. Um, so we would try and mix stuff, but it would be like Andy fade it down. No, no, fade yours down. I'm fading up. I'm fading up. Fade it down. Fade, no, fade it faster. I'm it would be like that. Yeah. Oh god. Well, that's Every
0: yeah. look. Everyone has a starting point.
1: Yeah, that was that was that uh, was a, a, our starting point. And then you know we kind of like got to own Andy. We managed to get some proper citronic turntables and that meant that we had a bit more of a thing and we i was you know would make the light the box with the traffic light things in it and paint it you know and then so we just did that when we were at school we were the kids who were you know did the discos and stuff um and then we just you know um grew that hobby grew and grew and and then i by the time i was Let's think, sort of 16, 17, I kind of knew that I wanted to do something either in radio or records. I very much wanted to move to London. So I didn't apply for university in Liverpool or Manchester or Glasgow or any of these places because I thought, I don't want to be in these cities. I want to be in London where all the record labels are, man, and where Radio 1 is and, you know, and where there's more gigs and the best clubs and all this kind of stuff. So I... um, yeah, made sure that I applied to go to uni in London, and then I had several adventures uh, in the, the 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 kind of summer vacations that either punctuated uni or, or you know, and just before and just after. So, so,
0: how did you make being so young? How do you make the huge leap to live in London? You
1: no, know, well, that via is- just really via. Applying for universities in London and then getting offered a degree course in London, so I tell my parents, "Hey, guess what? I'm moving to London to do my degree in London." They're like, "That's fair enough," but really, you know, it wasn't about the best place to do a degree. I just wanted to be where the action was. Then smart move, smart. Move. Yeah, it was. It was good. A good move for me. And I've <clears throat> I've found over the years that. If I can put myself in environments where interesting things happen, um, I just there's a greater chance that interesting shit will happen to me. It's as simple as that. You can't make your own luck because you can't summon that up out of thin air and just force luck or good fortune. You can't make it happen. So I actually disagree with that phrase, oh, you make your own luck. I don't actually agree with that but what you do is you can put yourself in in environments where you're more likely to get lucky and and more likely for fortuitous things to happen
0: all right so now take us in you get into london what happens come on yeah
1: so uh i was djing at, at university parties i actually do a podcast called trailblazers electronic pioneers um which is a, a sort of broad conversations a little bit like this but you know quite broad across electronic pioneering people um and funnily enough uh, one and one story a little anecdote i'll tell you now i was able to recount um during the fat boy slim uh episode so i interviewed me and eddie interviewed fat boy slim and we're down in his house in brighton and he's saying yeah so i was in this band um and, uh, and, you know, I had my first gig with the House Martins and, you know, blah. And I'm like, yeah, am I right in thinking, Norman, that your very first gig with the House Martins uh, was at Goldsmiths College? And he said, yeah, no, it, it was actually, Nick. That was the first gig. And it was a very um, special night because he goes, yeah, I met my, my, my first wife there that night. And I had my first proper gig with this band, which went on to have, you know, number one singles. And I said, yeah. And I go, do you remember who the, who was DJing before before the band that night? That, you, you know, the person who was who's who's DJing on that bill. He said, no, no, I don't at all. And I said, me, <laughs> of course, why would you remember? Okay, but there you go. So a little a little thing of how Fat Boy Slim and I were, were both in the same in the same place at the same time. Him playing a bass guitar and then me, me DJ, me warming up for the further house mines So, you know, so things like that would start to happen well, when wait I, a minute. that's like your Forrest Gump moment. You're actually in it. You're in oh, it. I've oh, got, I've got more of those, mate. I've got a lot of these moments.
0: See, that's, what, that's what we want to know. The Forrest Gump of why, how the hell are you there? And nobody knows anything about it. So you're going to tell
1: us now, now. You're yeah. Telling. Well, you know, look, if you just, if you're in an interesting environment, then, you know, just like I said, interesting shit happens. So I mean, my first year of uni, I mean, I'd only been in uni a few weeks and I was out on a Monday night and we'd been to some club uh, and then we were walking back through the streets of Soho about half two in the morning. And I see these two guys hanging out outside a club trying to sort of go, hey, hey, you want to come in, you know, trying to get people into the club, but they were being videoed. So it was clear it was being filmed. Um and what that turned out to be was they were filming the promo clip for I'm Your Man by Wham. So that was George Michael and, and Andrew Ridgeley standing there on the street pretending, like, come on in, come on in to a, you know, come in to, into this gig. And so, like, I walked past. I'm like, is that George Michael? That's about like this Wham. And these are, like, the biggest pop acts of the day. What are they doing just standing on the street? So I was a kid and, you know, I was at uni and, I just got the, the poster thing that said like live wham tonight or whatever out of the thing as they started to wrap up. I'm like, George, would you mind signing the, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, you know, signs of thing, what have you. And I go back and I'm just thinking, well, I guess this is the sort of thing that happens on a Monday night out in London. You end up just randomly stumbling across the biggest pop stars in the UK, in the street, And you just say, hey, can I have your autograph? And they go, yeah, sure. And, you know, so the, you, you talk about. There's been so many of these moments, but you know, I just find that that I, I get out there and I I kind of, you know, do my thing. And so I started helping out, uh, running club nights, and uh, and 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 then traveling. You know, so in in the I had three successes. Uh, consecutive summers uh let's have a think summer of 1986 where i dj'd in Mallorca, and i was the resident dj at a club called tokyo joe's in magaluf or or shagaluf as it was generally called
0: shagaluf
1: yeah as you know you can you know fill in the blanks yourself about what Mallorca was like in that era and, and tokyo joe's in magaluf in particular Tight clothes, very intimate, and yes, very intimate. Go all, ahead. All, all sorts of things we go on out there. Um, what stays in Mallorca? Stay yeah, there. well, that as well. So, you know, like I DJ'd at that club and I dj 86 nights consecutively from like 10 in the evening till. 6am or something ridiculous so did that i learned a lot from that and then i went to ibiza at the end of it just to hang out um so it was the first time i went to ibiza summer of 1986. summer of 1987 was a very big one for me so that was i when i lived in new york for the summer um and i had a work permit um you know, which meant that you could do any kind of job um, as a young person. You know, you could apply for them. Uh, and so I got a job as a cinema rusher in Queens. So I was living uh, in Queens and I was working cinema rusher in 71st and Continental. White oh, gloves. Forest Hills. Wow. Yes. Forest Hills. No, I no, was.
0: Way.
1: no way. Yeah, Wait. man. White gloves, dicky bow, you know, bow tie, whatever. I used
0: to, before I cut you off, I don't want to cut you off, cause this, but I worked... A few times at a club right around the corner called the Stratton on Queens Boulevard, which Ah. is right. It was a dinner club. I worked there. Ah. Yeah. Ah, Wow, that's interesting. Right around that time, I guess why I remember it so
1: clear. Go ahead. Mm. Wow, that was fun to you then. Wow. So who knows? Who knows, mate? Where where your paths may cross? Um. But yeah, so I did that, and then I had this really big break. Um, So I thought, like, I'm working in cinema, but I'd love to do something in radio or or records. Um, And I thought, how can I, um, you know, make something happen? So I just cooked this thing up. I thought, oh, maybe if I call up WBLS and say I'm writing an an article on New York radio and can I interview um, the uh, BK Kirkland who ran the station, I wonder maybe that, Maybe they might say okay. I don't know. I didn't really know what I was doing. But anyway, I called up and I said this. I spoke to his assistant and then she said, yeah. You know, like she, well, I'll have a word and maybe we'll call you back. Put the phone down. I thought that's probably the end of it. Ten minutes later, yeah, Mr. Kirkland would be delighted to be interviewed by a journalist from London. Can you come in at 10 a.m. tomorrow? I'm like, uh, yeah. Okay. And... Put the phone down. Oh my God, I'm interviewing somebody. I don't, I didn't have any questions. I wasn't a journalist. I, I just made this thing up, you know, just give it a try. So then, but then I've got to find some questions because I actually have got an interview to do. So I go in the next day, uh, hang out, do the interview. And then I get shown around the station, um, um, and, uh, end up, in the sort of programming area, um, and uh, there was a, a very friendly lady called Francine Cruz who, who, you know, kind of helped out. And and the general vibe was like, you know, you know, what are you doing this summer? I'm like, oh, I'm just I'm working in the cinema in the evenings, but I'd like to try and. And ideally gets you know, get an internship or something in a record label or radio, or whatever. Okay, she goes, Okay, well do you wanna just file file these records away and then phone up these this list of of stores cause we compile a chart and oh yeah, sure, I'm happy to do that. Do all that, gets to the end of the day. Um, and uh, she says, Okay, well well done, Nick. The same day that you went for the interview on BK Kirkland, you already started filing records away? Yes, same day, wow. yes. So, so, and, and then at the end of that, she said, so, so, yeah, well, thank you, Nick. That was really helpful. I'm like, wow, no, thank you for giving me a, a chance to sort of understand what goes on behind the scenes. You know, I really appreciate it. So she goes, same time tomorrow, 10 o'clock tomorrow. And I go, what? And she goes, basically, you're our new intern if you want to be. Oh, wow. And I said, wow. Okay. I said, I never, re- I never realized there was like a gig available. And they said, well, you know, no, we needed somebody to help out. And here you are. And you seem to be a good kid. So you got the gig if you want it. And I said, of course, I would would love to. So then I became an intern at, at WBLS, summer of 1987. I was just a young kid. Going, you know, going to the stores, buying the sodas, sandwiches, Marley Marl, what do you want for lunch? Hey, yeah, get me a this and that, and I'll have a can of that. Okay, Marley, no problem, you know, and Bobby Condors, what, what do you want? Okay, you want to, yeah, I'll get, get you some potato chips. Yeah, absolutely, you know, and I'll run down, and I'll bring the stuff back, and I'll tidy the shit up. Um, and then there's something amazing happened, Lenny. The um, plugger from Epic came in and, and said, hey. We've got a new Michael Jackson album going to drop. We've got a boat, uh, like a, a yacht, so that's going go around Manhattan. Uh, you know, there's going to be great food. His music's going to be incredible. Who wants to go to this launch event of the new Michael Jackson album? So I'm sort of sitting there, and I sort of go, Ah! <laughs> you like know that? Yeah, exactly. I'm like, I don't know whether I'm allowed to put my hand up. I'm just like inching it up like that. <laughs> he goes, yeah, you're a good kid. You can come. Give me a ticket, you know. And so some weeks later, I find myself in in amongst the glitter arty of the New York music world uh, at this um, playback event, you know, new Michael Jackson album. And... I'm thinking, what am I doing here on this mega yacht that goes around Manhattan? they got champagne, they got caviar. Nobody had ever given me champagne for free, Lenny. Maybe like a family funeral or a family wedding or something. That was it. Before, yeah. you know, and I was like, uh-huh, free champagne. Was okay. That the, was that the Bad Album? Yes. How did you run that time? I remember it clearly. Yeah. Ah, exactly. Well, good, remember, good memory. So, so I found myself on this boat thinking this is insane, this shouldn't be happening. Um, but it is happening. So if something as crazy as this can actually happen and is happening, then maybe some other equally crazy shit, maybe that can also happen down the line. Why not? Because I shouldn't be here. I know I shouldn't be here, but then I could count it back. But I am an intern at BLS and I got the internship by, you know, blagging the the the, the the interview thing, and I could trace back my steps as to how I got to be on that boat. Uh, but there was a moment where I thought maybe, I don't know, maybe I could sign a hit in the future. Maybe I'll even find a band that might have some hits. I don't know, maybe I could set up a record label or something, and who knows, you know, maybe I could have a hit myself. But I don't know any of this. And, of course, all of this stuff came, came to uh, transpire. Well, when you're in the middle of the boat, I know you're
0: seeing caviar dreams, champagne wishes. That changes you from that moment, even if it's not your style of music. Say, but just knowing that, like you said, the hierocracy of the industry is on this boat, and you're somehow listening to conversations. This opens your whole demeanor to a whole different world. You know, just you being in BLS in the back office, amongst one of the you know best dance stations of its time, yeah. R&B dance was enough to get a good start. And being English, I I was gonna ask that question. How is it has it work a young English lad goes from work at the cinema, does BK Kirkland, and then gets a the job and works at a
1: independent black owned station? Yeah. Like the hierarchy. It was it was, you know, it was it was just fine. Uh you know. I didn't really think about the The racial dynamic of it, particularly, you know, I didn't really think, (laughs) you know, I wasn't. Oh, I didn't really analyze it. I just think that I was hired on merit and timing, and I was thankful to be. I knew that once I'd been given the slot, it was my job to work hard and be efficient and keep delivering i knew that if i just chilled and like was feet up on the desk not doing any work i'm sure they'd have gone you're a nice enough kid but yeah you know sling it um so it was yeah it was just just an interesting dynamic and i just i just i just got on with it but i found people friendly i mean i went down to marley's house like he had a studio set up at home hung out there and and i went out to gigs and you know, I got to meet people from the record labels. That actually brings us to my Paradise Garage um, visit. So I had a couple of Paradise Garage visits. One anecdote, which is quite funny, on that there's a Scottish guy who used to live in New York, and uh, and he said, "Hey, eh, Nick, is this like Nick? We're going down Paradise Garage on Saturday night. You can come with us if you want. Uh, there's a few things you got to know." Oh, I'm like, "Okay, well, what you, what you, you got to know. Tell them I want to hear he this." Goes, Firstly, firstly, Nick, it's very black. <laughs> okay. Okay. And I'm thinking, well, you know, I'm, I'm like, I'm working at BLS. Everything's going fine. Yeah, I'm a white guy there. You know, I, I, I'm sure we can handle that, you know. Secondly, Nick, it's very druggy. <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, I don't do drugs. Um if everybody else is doing drugs, then that'll be interesting. I mean, hopefully they won't force me to do drugs. Um, very black, very druggy. Okay. Well, I'd say, well, what's the third thing? And he goes, and it's very gay. <laughs> it's very and I'm, I'm a straight young 19 year old white boy who doesn't do any drugs and Loves his music, but – so I'm thinking, right, I am wonder how this is going to go. But what I think is, I you know what, I'll go for it, and if I walk in there and after 10 minutes it is so, like, overpowering for all of these different reasons that I, I just don't feel safe or whatever, and then I'll just leave. And I, at least I got to see Paradise Garage for 10 minutes. As it happens, I got in there, and I was still in there at, like, 20 past seven in the morning. It's fine. So you might have even been there the same night. I was there two weeks before it closed. Uh, two Puerto Ricans, black man and Dominican. Um, who else? Was it Arnold Jarvis? Maybe. And it was. And Nicholas Torres, right? You could have been, could have been Liz Torres. It was what I remember, and you'd remember this if you were there that night. It was a night where Larry was pretty out of it. So, like, probably by about 5 a.m. or so, it was like the record was just like foot, foot, foot in the groove, and people were standing around waiting for somebody to give Larry a shake. And then, you know, but that guy, David DiPino, was really, really great that night playing like Nitro Deluxe and stuff. But, but Larry was. Not the
0: greatest. Please search for part two of this podcast on the platform you're watching or listening to. And please do not forget to follow us.